I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to try and worship God in spirit and in truth. We talk about all things here. We're getting really excited about Brother Matt Slick from CARM coming here Tuesday night, May 5th, for a two-hour Heart of the Matter special. Uh, Matt will address Calvinism, and then he will field questions from me and you, the audience. Uh, The format is going to be non-confrontational, but we will talk at length about Calvinism's Uh, presentation of Christianity and my questions about it. Uh, Tuesday, May 5th, if you want to be here, if you live in the Salt Lake area, come to our studio church, be here early. We could have a crowd. Refreshments and libations. Is libations another word for alcoholic drinks? Because that's not what I mean if it is. Uh, Refreshments and refreshing beverages will be served. Also, actually before the Matt Slick event, I've been invited by a Catholic radio show host named Jack Ashcraft. He's back east. He has a radio program on Friday, April 24th, Eastern Time at 9 p.m. Jack is a Byzantine Catholic priest, an independent author, and host of a radio program called Vexilla Regis. And you can tune into this interview by going to www.intrepidparadigm.com backslash or forward slash listenchat.html. Um, I guess Jack and I are going to be talking about Mormonism in the first part, and then we're going to be talking about agape love in the second. Speaking of online, this is from Seth. Podcasts are now available five, five, that's five days a week. We have 850 subscribers listening to a podcast that we just started. Uh, Seth has got that up and running. If you're interested in subscribing for free, for free, click on the link on the homepage or live page at HOTM.TV. The schedule this week, we are in episode 42 today, and he goes on. And then campus is also available five days a week. So again, if you're interested in subscribing for free, he reiterates, for free, click the link on the homepage or live page at HOTM or go to campuschurch.tv and click podcast. All the instructions are there, including a YouTube video showing how to use the podcast player. This man is really a genius with this stuff, and we're glad he is on board because I certainly am not. Every month, I don't know if you can zoom in on this. Do we zoom anymore? We don't zoom anymore. Oh, here. We'll zoom this way. Look at this zoom. You got a pre We have to put in an order ahead of time to zoom. It brings our guy out from the back, and he's ready to zoom. Let me put it up here. He's going to zoom right now. Now that we've already... See this? We get one of these once a month at least. Once a month. And it is a really good indicator of how wacko we can get with little bits and trivia points when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Covered in this are a bunch of things where Jesus' name, J-E-S-U-S, is circled and saying how this is a false name. And then there is a Christian tract here 
This is a trash from e Evangelical Track Distributors. It's a very innocuous track sharing. It says, there is hope in this troubled world. What you need to know is the name of the track, but scribble across the top, it says, false gospel. This is a false gospel. You know why? Because they use the name Jesus in it. You see, Jesus is not his real name. His real name is Yeshua, and unless you use Yeshua, you are perpetrating a false gospel. We get the year of darkness from the man. We get the name of the creator. We get how Palestine became Israel. We get Satan's uh, trickery about hell. We get whatever you ask in my name, more rhetoric about that. We get more blown up headlines about the name Yeshua. We get uh, Jesus is linked to Zeus, as in Jesus. Zeus, the pagan god, and Christ is from a Krishna pagan thing. So, uh, a thing on Sabbath day, on and on and on. At least once a month, this comes to us because this person is rabidly certain that unless we only say Yeshua, and that's probably pronouncing it wrong, we are not talking about the true Jesus Christ. That's how bad we can get with our little gospel hobbies and things like that. All right, listen. Last week I ended the program with an analogy about drug-resistant bacteria and the pharmaceutical company's refusal to try to fight it anymore, and I likened it to the church today. I woke up the next day realizing that I really didn't bring everything together in that. And so what I want to say is just the pharmaceutical companies need $1 billion and 10 years of R&D to come up with a new viable drug of almost any kind. That's kind of the rule of thumb. Whether it be a new antibiotic or a drug to treat depression or heart disease, $1 billion, 10 years. That's how much they put into it. So an antibiotic will come up and if they spend $1 billion and 10 years to develop it, it will become obsolete in a very short period of time because of uh, bacteria being resistant to uh, germs. So therefore, uh, pharmaceutical companies are putting their efforts into other drugs, more like designer drugs for depression or for diabetes or for uh, high blood pressure, which we've already got very good drugs for those things, but they'll put their money toward that because there's a better return on investment. The parallel to the church was this. We have been overusing our standard antibiotics, Christian antibiotics, our Christian stick uh, for centuries now, and the bacteria of the world fighting against it is beginning to win. In other words, our claims of not hold, are not holding up against reasonable scrutiny. They're not holding up anymore. And I'm talking about just reasonable thought. We used to take things and just accept it. Well, now people are, are really starting to question and challenge things, and they're not holding up. Instead of pulling back and doing what the church needs to do, which is develop more antibiotics to fight this, meaning go back to the word and fight it with real good exegetical hermeneutics and understanding what is being said, the church comes up with new designer approaches of doing church like concerts and business models and experiential religion. Instead of crafting these very necessary responses, reasonable responses, to the onslaught of stuff that's attacking us now. The Bible has points of view that have been altogether ignored because of Christian tradition. And those traditions have rode roughshod over people. Anybody questioning it, it's no, this is how it is. This is how it is. This is how it's always been. And we've just accepted it. Now those traditions, I don't believe are holding water and because they have been misused over all these years. And with that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. 
I'm convinced, utterly convinced, the difference between joint heirs with Christ that the Bible talks about and all others, the difference between the few who enter the straight gate and the broad who enter the broad way, uh, the difference between the most devout and those who are barely his, is those who are his love, seek and desire the truth. No matter what, no matter how painful, no matter how difficult, no matter the cost, no matter the fallout for embracing the truth, no matter the, who endorses the truth or who rejects it, truth seekers want the truth at all costs. We did an illustration a few weeks ago using a bus traveling through a land. And what we said is on that bus, the world population, people will get off at different destinations because those destinations attract them. And so some get off with destinations of flesh. And then as we travel higher and higher and higher, people get off at different destinations at higher philosophy, higher religion. And, when it, uh, and, 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 and then most people will jump off, we suggested, before you reach the summit which is the, the pinnacle of truth. Most people get off at some other destination because it appeals to them. The question is, how far will you ride the bus? How far will you go? When do you, or, or when have you gotten off the bus? Some people get off the bus because they love father or mother more than the Lord, and they uh, don't want to know him in spirit and in truth as much. Some people get off the bus because they love the things of this world more than truth. Jesus talked about them having the cares and riches of this world, get them to get off the bus before they reach the summit uh, every time. Some people would rather seek for treasures that are eaten by rust and moths, and some are get off the bus because they're fearful, or they're doubting, or they're lazy, and, or they love the dark more than the light. All of these are reasons scriptures give. You name it, there's a thousand ways till Sunday why people jump off the bus. Last week, a man came to our show, and after it was done, he walked up and he said, you're wrong. Just like that. I smiled and I said, okay. And uh, he said, is that all you're going to say? And I asked him if he had watched all the evidence we had given for the certain position that I was wrong on. Nope. Came the reply. Have you watched anything that we did on the topic? Nope. Then how can you say I'm wrong? Because you are. How do you know if you haven't looked at the evidence? Because I know. This is really how it went. Somehow Christians view this dogmatic style, which I accept it. I love the guy and I love him and he's, he's welcome to have that position. But somehow they view that as being admirable in God's eyes. That God will say, bully for them. They just stuck right with it and said, I know. You know, I know and that's it. It was obvious that my confronter was not out for truth, but he was out instead to protect what he believed was true. Big difference. Truth seekers seek truth and truth seekers find truth. Everyone else does all they can to protect and insulate themselves from upheaval, from discomfort, from thought and reflection on their established opinions, from change. Loving the truth is a precursor to salvation. Did you know that? Paul wrote of those who do not love the truth in 2 Thessalonians 2.10, saying, For they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. It's a love of the truth, he says, that they have not received so that they could be saved. That was the issue with all who did not receive Christ when he walked the earth. They preferred tradition. They feared men. They sought comfort in the form of certainty instead of going out and seeking the truth. Of course, the ultimate truth, with a capital T, is Jesus. Not religion, not law. John wrote in John 1.17, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. John quoted uh, Jesus as saying in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus told a woman at the well, Samaria, John 4, 23, the hour comes and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Listen to this. For the Father seeks such to worship 
him. In the very next verse, Jesus reiterates the importance of these words when he says, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth, in truth. One of the results of this attitude is of truth-seeking is the liberty that it brings the individual. The truth does not produce bondage, ever. It produces only true liberty. Jesus said in John 8, 32, You shall know the truth, you all know this, and the truth shall set you free. Free. Truth-seekers realize this vital promise firsthand, which is why they continue to seek for truth, because it continues to liberate them from chains that religion and philosophy and the ideas of other people have on their life. As they pursue the truth, they find themselves freed from those things, and that freedom pushes them to, to desire more. What happens is, is when someone gets off the bus, they say, this is the spot I want to remain where I don't want to be free, more, any more free. I want to be only as free as this location will give me, and they get off at that point. Truth seekers realize that we are free from, and we are free to. We are free from what? Anything and everything that serves to keep us bound. Myth, traditions, flesh, manipulation, free from fear, from guilt, from chains. Free to what? When you're free in this way, you're free to love. You're free to relax. You're free to exercise patience and joy and faith in the King and His ways instead of our own. We are never, ever, ever free when we are in control. We are not free when we are in control of ourselves or when we let others control us. That is not freedom. The only freedom possible is when Christ Jesus, by His Spirit, does the controlling. That is when a person discovers the truth and the truth makes them free. Every single step forward shining out from Jesus Christ removes the fetter of our chains and we become more and more able to love. Jesus came to set the captives free, to open the prison doors of those who were bound. And he said to Pilate, everyone who is of the truth is about the truth, who honestly seeks the truth, hears my voice and follows him into the light, come what may. With that, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we want to be seekers of truth. We get afraid. We become fearful of what is down the road, but we trust in you, and you told us when you were here, don't fear, doubt not, walk in faith, and trust in you. And so we're trying to do that, Lord. Be with our volunteers, be with the staff, be with everyone who is participating in this venture and help the truth to come out when it isn't and when it doesn't. Let us forget about it. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, before going on to the development of the word itself, I've promised this for two weeks, but I've got to talk about four principles, and I think these are very interesting. Uh, we put a lot of stuff out there, and it's really important to make sure we're all on the same page. And so the first thing I want to point out, listen carefully. When we talk about subjective Christianity, I am not preaching relativism. And I am not preaching the virtues of postmodern thinking. I am not clearly understand that truth with a capital T is not subjective at all. Truth with a capital T is not subjective, nor is it relative. The fact of the matter is Christianity is entirely objective, completely objective as it comes from God. God's truths are what they are. They do not vary. They do not change because he governs truth and implements truth. He alters the way we approach it, but his truth is unchanging. Truth does not change and truth is not relative. Okay? Moral relativism says that truth is relative to the people or the culture or the groups that are involved with it. It says things like, this is my truth. Or this is where, this is my, uh, your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Hear me clearly. I am not suggesting moral relativism or any sort of relativism at all. Truth, capital T from God truth, is not subjective. It's entirely objective. Got that? 
But what is highly subjective, however, is every individual's ability to understand and comprehend God's objective truths as they shine down upon us. So in other words, in subjective Christianity, the claim is not that we all have our own version of the truth and it's acceptable. The claim is we don't know that much about anything at all, and so we don't allow divergent views to cause division between us. There are so few things that we fully, completely understand that when it comes to God's pure truth. And that is evident by all the varying views we have on all the varying subjects. So I'm not saying the truth is altered. That is objectively applied by God. Our understanding of it can be different as we sojourn along this road together as Christians. Related to this, Paul says, If any man thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. Scripture supports this varied view of things when it talks about believers, some of them being babes, some of them being young men and women, some of them being adults, some of them having the morning star rise in their hearts. These are all different ways, Scripture says, how we all receive His truth at different levels in different ways. And to step back and say, this is how it has to be thought about or seen is really a sign of immaturity and and, well, immaturity. There is maturity. There are people who can drink uh, milk and only milk, and there are people who can eat meat, and they eat it readily and well. Because humans are so frightened of instability and insecurity and uncertainty, they, we glom on to certain things and never let go. We're like a drowning person in the sea. Let me tell you a true story. When I was an ocean lifeguard years and years ago, uh, we were having one gnarly day of massive waves, warm weather, warm water, and huge rips, okay, rip, rip currents, not tides. And uh, the swells were coming in 10 to 12 foot faces, and people were getting sucked out, and there was a woman, and she was caught in the, what we would call a mega rip, about as wide as this room, which is wide, sucking out to sea just pulling everybody who came into that rip right out. And she was one of them, and she was tired. I got to her, and I strapped her in with my uh, Pete Peterson buoy. It's a flexible buoy. It has a long hook on one end and a loop on the other, and it's this big foam thing. And you swim out with it, and you, and you throw it over their shoulders, and you hook them in, and you swim in with them. And uh, so I got her into shore, and when I put that thing around her, she clung on to that like no other. We got into shore, and she, as she walked with me out of the water, she clung onto it, and she said, can I sit for a minute? I said, sure. She sits down clinging to the buoy. She's on dry sand now, clinging to the buoy. And she doesn't realize she doesn't need it anymore. And I have to, I have to say, I've got to go. That we're having a very busy day. I got to go. And it really, it didn't, I didn't have to pry it off, but I had to kind of reassure her, it's okay. Let go of the, of the life preserver. You don't need it now, okay? We might tell people, don't ever get into the water. It's dangerous. There's wisdom not to get in there. Or that once you've got a life-saving device on, you should wear it, whether you're in the water or not, just to be certain if a tsunami comes, you'll be protected. We might have all kinds of answers but Jesus tells us to learn to come out and walk with him on the water. I'm not saying we do it literally. During the storm, without anything but him. The point of subjective Christianity is suggest that we exercise patience and love when dealing with people who have views that they're clinging to because they're afraid to let go, or people whose views are really, really out there that maybe we can't understand because they're meaty. And that everything else which serves to divide ought to be left up to the individual believer. Finally, I do think that the whole of God's objective truth can be summarized in one word, and that word is agape. Going back to Paul's words about knowing let me put it into context. Listen to what he said in context. Knowledge puffs up, but agape edifies. If any man thinks he knows anything, 
He knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man agape God, the same is known of him. What Paul is saying there is, listen, your knowledge, if you think you've got it, it doesn't mean jack, dude. You don't have a full picture on the objective truth of God. And if you think you do, it's time for a a correction because you don't. And if you start thinking you do, you're going to start imposing that on everybody else. Let's give ourselves a little bit more leeway, a little bit more room to differ on matters. In my estimation, which again may be debated, but in my estimation, Christianity is summed up as faith in Him and love for Him and others. That's it. And, um, you know, the gospel, everything else, it's up in the air. It's up in the air. You can criticize for Trinity. You can criticize eternal punishment. You can criticize end times. You can criticize... uh, uh, subjectivism, you can criticize thoughts on Christianarchy, you can criticize all of that stuff, but you know what? Your way is no better. It's no better. The thing that will last is love and faith in the King. The second unrelated principle, this is, this is going to be good for you. I think you're going to like it. And I'm going to cover Daniel's 70 weeks in a very short period of time. Now, those of you who don't understand this, there's a prophecy in Daniel. And it's about 70 weeks, okay? And he says all of this is supposed to happen before the end, okay? People who believe Jesus is still coming back, that he's going to come rapture believers, believe that 69 weeks have occurred, and there's a gap of 2,000 years so far between that 69th week ending and the 70th week being completed, okay? In that 70th week, for futurists, for people who are waiting for Jesus to come back to rapture us, they say what will happen is the Antichrist will come in. He'll make a deal for three and a half years. That's half of the, of the 70th week. And then, the, and then he'll break it in another half, okay? Here is the preterist view of the 70 weeks, okay? And let me try to explain it to you. I'm using something Derek gave me, and it's going to be a helpful hint, Okay. And I use abbreviations, you're watching, so just listen. Here we are in 457 B.C. At Artaxerxes, um, he um, decreed, I'm going to restore Israel. So this is the date, the starting date. This is Daniel's 70 weeks, okay, from a preterist view. Okay, so we have Artaxerxes claiming this, and then at 408 B.C., we have Jerusalem restored. So what we have there are 49 years, which is seven weeks of years, and which, uh, so that's how you can see it. What What a week represents is a year. So 49 years is going to be seven weeks of years. That's how you understand this prophecy by Daniel. Okay, Jesus is born here in 4 BC, they're saying now. So Jesus is born. And then we have between this time when Jerusalem was restored and this point in time, which is 27 AD, what we have is another 434 years or what is known as 62 weeks of years. And so what we have is a total at this point of 27 AD, 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy. Okay? At 27 AD, since Jesus was born about 4 BC, we have Jesus' ministry beginning at this point. This is the beginning of three and a half years. Okay, of the last week, this is the last week of the 70 weeks, and then we have the other three and a half uh, weeks continuing on until, uh, because the Messiah was put to death. Make sure I got all this right. The times of the end is determined. The Messiah was cut off. So this is, this is the, the total 70 weeks of how our preterist views it. Okay? And then we come on, and this last part, 
from this point here forward, from Jesus dying to 70 AD, this is a generation where Jesus said in Matthew 24, a generation will pass and all these different things are going to come. And right about this point in 1 Peter, Peter said, the end of all things is at hand. That's at 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. This period of time is known as the appointed time of the end. And that is Habakkuk 2, 3 is the one who mentioned that. This is the appointed time of the end fulfilled here. So we have the 70 weeks completed here in Daniel, and then we have the appointed time of the end. We have one full generation, 40 years going from the time Jesus died to the destruction. We have Nero coming in here and persecuting Christians. We have the daily sacrifices abolished in the temple. We have all the things that the futurists say are going to come in the future, all happening with this period of time. Now, is it, is it foolproof? I don't know. I'm not smart enough. I don't get involved in it enough. But people have asked me, well, what about the 70 weeks? How does that work? Now, that's a very reasonable timeline for the 70 weeks and then the appointed end of time from Habakkuk and the generation that Jesus said would go 40 years and in 70 days it's destroyed. That's a very reasonable approach. What's not reasonable to me is the futurist saying that there's a 2,000-year gap uh, between the 69th and the 70th week to occur that we're still waiting for. That does not make any sense to me. It's not clear. It's not straightforward. That's a very straightforward approach. Okay, a third thing I want to talk about, principle, and it's if we take the Bible, well, let me say, if we took War and Peace and we did a word search on all the words in there, if death was mentioned in War and Peace the most, and rabbits were mentioned once. We could say War and Peace is a book primarily about death. And then we could say, and they also do mention a rabbit in there. Okay? So it, what, what, if we take the Bible and we say, what are the word counts? Now, I know this is really bad science and it's not a great thing, but what are the word counts in the Bible? What is mentioned most in this bag of Bible words and what is mentioned, what's the top seven things, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, that weighs he most heavily in the Bible in terms of a message? Can you guess what number one is, the number one word, or words like it? The number one word is God. Jesus, God, Lord, 2,600 times. Okay? So we can say right off the bat, this is a book about God. Okay, the next word might surprise you, faith. Faith is the next most used word in the entire Bible. That's 501 times, so you can see it's substantially less than God or Lord or Christ. The next one, what do you think? Spirit. That's uh, 385 times. Okay, and the next one is love. And that is mentioned 230 times. And then we drop down and we have Father, which is next in line. And we have Sin. And we have Heaven. And these are all in the 200 range. Those are the words that are used the most. Now I realize I could say a lot of different things in there. But just as a kind of a cursory study of what's most mentioned or used in the Bible, there you have it. You notice we don't have much about some of the things we're always debating on. We notice that a lot of that is not the focus. It seems like these are the focuses. You know, we have God and we have faith in God and we have the Spirit and we have love and we have the Father and we have sin and we have heaven. That sounds like some reasonable things to talk about as Christians, huh? And maybe, maybe try to divide uh, some logic up and, and what the doctrines and purposes are. But I thought that was an interesting thing. Finally, last thing. We have Frank in Big Ben, Wisconsin. Frank, we're going to get to you in just a second. I'm going to give you an illustration. It's just going to take me a minute. So calls, it's, we have one, and hang on, Frank. Um, I think it says a lot. Um, I'm going to call this illustration the man on the hill. All right? 
Use your imagination and go with me. A man has been walking for days, walking and walking and walking, and he arrives at the top of a very steep hill, and that is blocking his entire view of what's out in front of him. And he's carrying an Old Testament in his arms. And the year is 70 A.D., December. And he opens up the Old Testament before he climbs the hill, and it says in Ecclesiastes 1.4, One generation passes away, and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. That's what it says. The earth abides forever. And he starts to climb toward the top of the mountain. He's heard that prophecies from the Old Testament have been talking about a Messiah that was born 74 years be, uh, before. He climbs and he thinks about all that he heard about this Messiah, this Jesus, his birth, the life he lived, and how he came for the house of Israel. Okay, And the, how this Messiah came to those people as promised. Yes, he has come to save the whole world, but he has heard he came for those people as promised. The man remembers how he learned that this Messiah taught 12 apostles and how he promised that, that he would come back to the house of Israel for them. As he climbed towards the top, the man recalls the apostles, asked this Messiah about when will your return be? And he remembered after teaching them all, he, he said to them, this all will happen within 40 years. And the man says, that was 30 AD. The man climbs the hill. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 34, this generation shall not pass till all these things I've told you have come to pass. The man climbing, he heard that the Messiah was killed. He rose from the dead on the third day. He ascended into heaven. And that angels told the apostles, what are you looking for? The one you saw going up is going to come back in the same way meaning from the clouds. Then the man heard that these very same apostles took the message out and they shared with it to all who would hear in the house of Israel. This Messiah came. We killed him. You killed him. But he came. Believe on him and you'll be saved from the indestruction that he promised is coming. They taught that he was coming back. They, uh, with judgment, but most importantly, they taught them you can be saved from that judgment if you believe on him, and many did. The man just about to get to the top of the hill remembers reading letters that the apostles had sent around. He reads from Paul in Romans 13, 11, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. He reads how he wrote in Philippians 4, 5, let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. He re remembers reading from James the Apostle, James 5.8. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draws nigh. He remembers hearing that the apostles were all proclaiming this during that period of time that Jesus was absent. The writer of Hebrews says, For yet a little while, and he shall come, will come, and will not delay. And how Peter said, but the end of all things is at hand. Be you therefore sober and watch unto prayer. The climbing man had to decide, were the apostles right? Did he come back as he was promised? Did he come back as they had been warning everybody? And, and then he turns to the book of Revelation, which was written to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And in, verse, in the ch first chapter, verse 3, Jesus says, the time is at hand to the seven churches. And then in verse 7, John writes, Behold, he comes with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. That's what's said. And then the guy thinks about going to the back of the book of Revelation and what it says in that concluding chapter, chapter 22, verse 6. These things which must shortly be done, the book ends with. And then in verse 7, Behold, I come quickly, it says in this last book. And then in verse 10, it says, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of the, for the book, for the time is at hand. And then he reiterates at verse 12, Behold, I come quickly. My reward is with you. He's wrapping up this final book of Revelation to the seven churches. And then the second to the last uh, book of, the, of uh, Revelation, we read, He which testified these things, surely I come quickly, he said. Amen. And then how John adds the very last book of Revelation, Even so, come, Lord 
Jesus. And the man comes over the top of the hill and he looks down on Jerusalem. It's December of 70 AD. Do you know what he sees? He sees over a million dead Jews bloated and lying in the streets and laying in the valleys and utterly being eaten by vultures from the sky. He sees the house of Israel scattered. He sees the magnificent temple utterly destroyed. The book of Revelation talks about the temple. If it was written in its 95 AD, why would it be talking about a temple that was destroyed in 70 AD? He sees the city of, the, of uh, David laid waste. He hears echoes of cries and weeping and laments. And the contents of the spiritual history are done. He sees it with his own eyes. The promises are over. The city of peace has been wiped out. The genealogies have been irreplaceably destroyed. No one knows who is of what house anymore. And he understands now, at this point, when he turns his back on Jerusalem and looks out to the world, and he says, now there's no difference between Jew and Gentile and male and female. Now there is no more any of this other stuff. Now the Holy Spirit is guiding. The Holy Spirit reigns over the hearts of individuals, nations, no more. No more nations, individuals. And he recalls that passage from Ecclesiastes. One generation passes and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. And he looks up toward Antioch and he says, there's believers there. And he looks out towards Ephesus and he says, there's believers out there. And he looks 1,600 miles away where letters were written in Rome and says, there's believers out there. And he ponders the future of what Jesus did on the cross for the rest of this world. What did he do? How's it going to work? And he says, is it going to come together? It's not in the hands of the apostles anymore. They're all gone, except maybe John. If, John, if John's here, that's fine. He's, he knows Polycarp. And we know the Bishop of Antioch and, and, and we know the Clement of Rome and we know Ignatius of Antioch, Antioch and we know Polycarp and we know those guys, but are they going to be able to hold this whole thing together? And when they're gone, who's going to replace them? And you know who replaces them? Guys who are assigned by, guys who are assigned by Constantine. And then the word isn't going to be available that he remembered reading letters from for 200 years. And so he says, what's going to happen? with this great movement that, that started here, ended here, and now is out to the world. And he realizes that it's by the spirit that he now has. He's going to go to his family and he's going to share verbally what Jesus is. He's going to wait for that word to be put together. He's going to walk in faith and hope and he's going to realize the institutions, the nations, the peoples, it's all done. It's over with. It's now abiding in the heart. He knows there's going to be counterfeits. By 170 AD, they said the counterfeits of the Bible were just as many as the real thing. Nobody knew what was truth during that time. He knew it would take a long time for the counterfeits to be cleared up. The earth will abide forever. His kingdom was not of this world. The seekers of truth will always hear him and follow him in faith and love. Let's simplify it. All right, let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413. 590-8413. We're going to come back to Frank in Big Bend, Wisconsin. In the meantime, take one quick look at this. One, two,
All right, we're going to Frank in Big Bend, Wisconsin. Frank, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah, uh, I just, I'm going to call out, I tell you, I like your show a lot, and I just wanted to make a couple of comments. Yeah. You know how you keep talking about uh, the the stuff on the doctrine and the different churches and stuff and yeah. how they can't produce uh, good fruit and bad fruit? I would encourage you to look at it kind of like the churches are orchards. Okay. And the, the the people involved are the fruit, and so the orchard can have a bad tree. Okay. All you right. know, and, and not, so it can produce good fruit and bad fruit. That's how the believers can stay in the church and, and make it through. Okay. You know? I, I, I understand. I think that's a good way to do it, a good way to see it. I think it fits in the parable with Jesus and the wheat and the tares. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, the problem, though, the is the next thing, you know, I was going to say, you know, in my in my limited view of it, I think the Lord knew that if if there wasn't doctrine involved in, in these years leading up to this, um, we we wouldn't. Man's lazy. I mean, that's just the bottom line. And so, and I say that I'm going to give you this example. It'll take about a minute for me to get it out, but. I had a buddy, we went to school together, okay, and he took a different path, and he got, he had to spend a couple of years in the pen. And when he got out, he wanted to be a millwright. So he had to take a math class. And so he was telling me about it, and he said, yeah, he said, after about two weeks, he said, I just couldn't do it anymore. So I went up and asked if I could be, get, a, get out of the class and get my money back. And the teacher said, well, you know, Gary, if you'll stay in there, three more weeks, I'll get you out of the class and get your money back. So he said it was just terrible because we both hated school. And uh, <laughs> so he, he, he said, though, about the second and a half week that he was in there, he said, man, it looked just like a, 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 he learned another language. He said all of a sudden the, the, the answers would just shoot off the page at him. He graduated most improved in class, top of the class, got all the awards that you could get through it. Mm -hmm. And so he went up to her at the end and asked her, he said, why did you even care about me at all? Because, you know, I'm just another con coming through here. She said, well, she said, you know, you had a, you really were good in math and you didn't know it because whoever taught you math, you had a good foundation. And I knew that you just had to, to use it enough to know that you had a good foundation and then it'd be all right. And I think that's what kind of how doctrine should could be looked at, because we had to have the foundation, and God knows how our brains work, and because He made them. But without that foundation, we wouldn't be able to see. We wouldn't be able to see the new language that's been the mystery the whole time. Frank, I'm all for the foundation. I'm all for the Word of God. It's, it's, this is a very tough thing to approach because it's automatically assumed that I am preaching not the Word. I don't. I'm not. But what I am saying is we have to allow people divergent views of what the Word is saying. Exactly. But, and I agree with you. And I think you preach a Word. You know, I, I was raised in the South. I've, I've heard a bunch of preaching, believe me. Yeah. And uh, I think you do a great job. But, and I agree with what you just said. But now that I'm, that what I'm saying is, is that look at, and I don't know how it was exactly when you first came out of Mormonism. Yeah. But, you know, you had a, a great foundation laid in a way, though it was not really the foundation you might have wanted. <laughs> And when you seen, when you was exposed to the truth and the foundation was allowed to work for you in the proper way with advanced problems and things like that, well, then, then it was just a whole other picture for you. You've seen things totally different than you ever had before. True. I know that that's what you do for me when I'm listening to you and I'm thinking of, well, you know, how... Things that I thought about that I, I couldn't understand. How could that even be? But if you look at it from another view, it's like, holy crap! That's 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 how that could have happened. Yeah, that's what he meant there. Yeah. Well, your so, points are really well taken. I, I like what you're having to say because it, you know it's it's uh, it's in harmony with Scripture. The viewing the church as an orchard. I like that, and uh, appreciate you watching, my brother.
Hey, I tell you what, you do a good job, and I appreciate you a lot, man. Uh, God bless you. God bless you, Frank. Bye-bye. Right. We're going to Keith in New York. Uh, I got, uh, now, Keith and I had a, I hung up on Keith uh, about two or three weeks ago. Keith, before we go, I want to say something, okay? Yeah. Uh, we'll carry on our conversation as long as we are completely upfront with each other. Okay. All right. So go ahead. Okay. Okay. I guess you recognize who I am. I, I can't hear you online right now. I am downstairs with my screen on both. I'm trying not to be too loud. Anyways, um, so you recognize who I am, I guess. We were talking about how you disagreed with Sola Scriptura, and I said, have you looked into the Catholic Church? A lot of what Protestants believe, Catholics believe, is not what we actually believe. And I was trying to explain to you the different misunderstandings that Protestants have of what we believe. And you were right. saying I was obfuscating. I was just trying to explain what we actually believe. Right. And, like and with, my question to you, uh, your, question, your statement, if I can add, was, listen, huh? councils, councils are the way it was established in Acts 15, and councils are the way that we establish what doctrine is and isn't, and that is what the Catholic Church has adhered to all these years, and that's why it works so well. Is that right? I think I understand what you're asking. We're following the model that, that the, uh, the, we see in the Bible of how, how, disputes, how disputes are settled. Right. We didn't know what was going on with the Judaizers, so they got together and decided the Gentiles had to become Jews, and they got together, they decided it, right. that became dogma for the Church. Right. Yeah. And then my comment to you was, it was councils in the Catholic Church that came up with Mariology, and I asked you the point-blank question, do you pray to Mary, communicate with her in any way, shape, or form, and you would not answer that question directly? Yes, I will. You have to let me answer it, though. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Catholics believe in what's called the communion of saints. It's not just Mary. It's every single person who's in heaven, right? That this death does not separate us from Christ. The Bible says that. I can't, picture the, I can't get the exact verse, but you know that, right? Yeah. So the saints in heaven are aware of us. We can't see them, but they know what's going on with us. And so we can ask God to have them pray for us. We're not worshiping them. Mary's not God. She's a created being, right? I didn't say but worship. I can ask her to pray for me. You're asking Mary to pray for you. And every saint in heaven, yes. And all the saints in heaven. Okay, and that came up yeah. from a council, right? I don't even know what specific council that is, because that's really early on in the church. You can read that in the church fathers. Yeah. I, I, uh, it is in a council, though. But we know that, that uh, biblically speaking, and that was my challenge to you, you were going to cite Revelation, but biblically speaking, I don't see Jesus commending his apostles, saying in Scripture that we ought to communicate with Mary on behalf, on our behalf. Yes. Well, I would say Mary was alive for most of the writing of the New Testament. Uh, John lived the longest. So he would have been probably the apostle that was alive after her death. And we see him talk about her. He doesn't use her name, but he talks about the woman who gave birth to Jesus being bodily in heaven, Everybody else he mentions in heaven is a soul, right? But he mentions the woman who gives birth to Jesus being bodily in heaven, and you combine that with Revelation 5, where the saints in heaven hear the prayers of the living and lift them up to God. So you combine those things together, and okay. at least... So you've combined, your, your councils have combined that together, and I just use Mary as one thing. I, we didn't talk about, about Fish Fridays. We didn't talk about Lent. We didn't talk about the Eucharist and, and all the plethora of things that the Catholic Church has decided by their councils that are absolutely non-biblical. They might take... On, okay, go ahead. Fish on Fridays and practices such as priestly celibacy. Sorry, that's my baby. How about, calling someone, how about like just calling someone father? Things like that are not dogma. Those how about are practices. So Pope Francis could decide tomorrow. You know, starting your fish on Fridays and preaching get married. How about calling someone father? How about, the Eucharist, the Eucharist is. How about, dogma. how about this one? How about calling someone father? Not calling someone father or calling someone father? Not calling someone father? Well, yeah. I would say, um, 
Don't pinch your uh, baby. Paul, Paul told Timothy that he is his spiritual father. In, in the church, we, we refer to fathers, we have brothers, those are monks, we have sisters, nuns, mother, mothers are nuns, the laity are the children. So we, we use, we're a big family, so we use family terms. So that doesn't mean that the, the priest, the father, somehow replaces God. And I think that's what Jesus was alluding to. So you interpret really it that way. In Ju- Judaism, where the, uh, your rabbi, you got your authority from your rabbi, and he basically superseded Moses, really, in effect. Yeah. I think that's what he's really talking about. Well, Keith, listen, I, you know, to me, I don't care if you do Eucharist, pray to Mary, call someone Father, or eat fish on Friday or don't. I, it doesn't matter to me. I just, you know, if you have the, the core essential of the gospel, you believe Jesus is Lord and Savior, you're responsible for the beliefs that you adhere to. And that's what I'm just trying to say. Sola Scriptura, my problem with it is it's Scripture alone. And never has it been Scripture alone. It's always Scripture in harmony with the Holy Spirit. In harmony with the Holy Spirit. We're going to have to let this one go. uh, Keith, thanks so much. God bless you. I got done listening to babies cry when my youngest uh, grew up. All right, let's go to Mark in Meridian, Idaho. Mark, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. How's it going? It's going well. Going good. How are you? Good. I'm good. Hey, I got one quick question for you. Yeah. Uh, not a question. I got a comment, man. You got something on your arm, a new tattoo. What is it? Uh, that's, uh, uh, this one? That is, that is a Christian anarchist flag. (laughs) And what does that represent? Well, what it represents, if I went through the whole thing, is that if if Christ didn't come, this would be a completely black flag. But this is Christ entering into the world. This is the door of Christ. And he shines a light down into the darkened world. And it's only through him that we are going to have light. And, and it's very symbolic. There's a whole story behind it. But that's what that wow. means. Okay. I've just never seen it. And there it was. You got a new one. There it is, baby. You're going after it, man. You ever wonder why you're doing it? Oh, I know exactly why I'm doing it. Uh, I I would have done it years ago, but my Mormon upbringing wouldn't allow that. And then when I had daughters, I didn't want them following in their dad's behaviors when they were younger. So I waited until they were grown before I started rebelling. Okay. There it is, brother. Thanks. All right, man. Love you. I appreciate it. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. And we're going to David in Salt Lake. How much time, Derek? Two minutes, David. You're up. Hey, man, I just wanted to say a couple things. Ah. I understand all your eschatology is secondary, and I agree with that. It's not pertinent to salvation. But I just had a couple questions about preterism. Yeah. Man, all the things that you're saying are contingent on the fact that the books of the Bible were written before 70 A.D. But how do you rectify that with the fact that even the most conservative scholars would date the majority of the books of the Bible after 70. I don't think that's true at all. I don't think, I, most, I, I do not think that is true at all. Well, the, the, even the most conservative scholars wouldn't date the book of Revelation before 90. No, 95 AD only has one source of support. The book of Revelation itself proves it had to have been written prior to 70 AD because it, it, it mentions a temple. It mentions all sorts of things chronologically. The book itself, there is one reference tied to Eusebius and Polycarp that we use as a possible dating, and it's the only one we've stood on for the 95 a stamp of time for Revelation. Why, for, if it was written in 95 AD, why wouldn't there be some type of reference to the temple being destroyed? Why wouldn't in the Revelation Jesus say to the seven churches uh, something about the devastation that took place? It's clearly a book that was written before 70 AD. I, I understand that that's your belief, but I'm telling you that even the most conservative scholars would not place it before 90. And I'm telling you that's, well, even the most conservative, well, maybe I have some liberal scholars that would differ with that. 
Uh, no, the most li- no, the most liberal scholars definitely wouldn't put it any earlier than that. People I would say like you're Bart, wrong. People so like, people, no, I'm not. People like Bart Ehrman and stuff like that, who is the leading textual critic, would never. And he's a liberal, but he would never place it. I don't for nine. Ca- look at. We can find a, what we want to find somewhere out there. Someone's going to support the view we want. Okay, let's but, say I'm wrong. I want to know why. The temple is still mentioned in Revelation, and it's not mentioned that it was destroyed if it was written after 70 A.D. Why? But, what do you mean? I don't, I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> Give me a reference. I mean, it's all, it's all, all I'm just saying, all your, all your views are contingent on the fact that the books of the Bible were written before 70, and that is, just, that is completely contrary to even what conservative scholarship would Okay, you've repeated believe. that, and I disagree with that, and the scholarships that I have shows that the conservative estimates are showing that the Gospels were written far closer to Christ's ascension than they were further, and I'm, everything I'm reading is completely different from what you're saying, but it's okay. Look at it. Here's, here's what I'm saying. If that's, if that's true, then next week cite some sources, because the most conservative scholars would put Mark is being written first, and put it in the late 60s. You've got it. I'll show you what I'll show you my sources next week. In fact, next week we'll open up with a premise of how Revelation itself proves it was written prior to 70 AD. And we don't have to rely on the guesstimations, which is what all of them are, on when it was dated. They're all guesstimations, even your most okay, conservative well, scholars. Okay. okay all right, well, next I'll, week so I'll do it. Also, maybe you should put Matthew 24:35 on the screen instead of just 24:34 when it says heaven and earth shall pass away. When you're just we covered that. We covered that. Ex- you're using Ecclesiastes to say the earth's going to stay forever, taking that out of context of what the whole. It's not out of context. Says. No, David. Now you're now you're pulling a. But we went into depth. We've covered it, and the reason I don't go into all of it is because we have covered it extensively of what heaven and earth shall pass away and what the Greek terms were for heaven and earth there and what that meant in the language. So it's not, it's not me trying to uh, 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 cloud the issue. We're very clear on where we stand with it. I'm not trying to pull anything. I'm just pulling things out to give reminders about what it says. There's a very clear answer on the preterist view of what heaven and earth shall pass away. We gave that in the Old Testament where it says the same thing, and obviously heaven and earth didn't pass away. It's a Hebraism. It's, it's language that is evoking imagery. It is not literal, which is how you're taking it. Okay, we got to go, way, my friend. Either, Thank you either for. Either way, it's all secondary. Either way, it's all secondary, man. Boy, it is. I, I just think it is secondary. Agree with you. It is secondary, but I do think the preterist view is very important if we are going to overcome this idea that Jesus is coming back to take up His church and everybody's got to be frothing at the mouth to get ready, which we've done for two thousand years. And I think the preterist view will help lessen all the excitement and get people to kind of get along and be ready for the long haul here of loving each other and doing it right. David, we're out. I love you. Thanks for calling. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the And I won't be coming out, I'm going in. This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred.